Welcome to the Good Shepherd New York podcast. Good Shepherd New York is a community helping New Yorkers embody the love of Christ for the good of our neighbors. For more information, go to goodshepherdnewyork.com. May you be filled with curiosity, grace, and peace as we listen and learn together through this sacred text. Our story begins with inquisitive and curious characters who are searching and seeking. Now, I'd like to give you a little pop quiz about these visitors. Who are they? You might say they're kings, but that important detail is not included at all in our gospel text. How many were there? You may say three. After all, the three wise men is basically a household staple during the holidays with nativity sets and songs to support. But the text doesn't give us the slightest hint at how many there were. What were their names? You may not recall all three, but probably you know how much you love the best eggs benedict in the city at the Soho restaurant that bears one of their names. Balthazar is the name, by the way. But our text doesn't mention their names at all. Where does this scene of visitation take place? You may answer, in the stable, of course, huddled around the infant Jesus with the shepherds and with the animals. But once again, our nativity scenes and our songs reinforce what is nowhere to be found in our text. Here, they're visiting the Holy Family in a house, not a stable. And Jesus is a toddler, not an infant. So what does our text tell us about these mysterious visitors? Well, they're called magi, which is a word associated with Zoroastrian astrologers from the East. This word is used three times in the book of Acts, and each time in a negative way. Because of their dubious reputation among the Jewish and emerging Christian communities, over the years, traditions emerged. Traditions that created distance between these figures and their dubious associations, traditions that continue to cloud our understanding of the story and potentially cause us to completely miss its scandalous implications. These stargazers from the east are led by a mysterious star to Jerusalem where they begin asking questions, questions about a king. Now, when an entourage arrives from a foreign place into Jerusalem asking about the birth of a king and paying homage, this doesn't get swept under a rug. First of all, people were obsessed with potential Messiah figures who would deliver them from Roman occupation and oppression. They were, from time to time, stirred up by the hope of would-be political heroes who claimed that they could do just that. But that often happened from within. It would have been fairly jarring to have dubious outsiders bringing this kind of news, and it likely would have left the people with mixed emotions. Sure, It's exciting to think that we have reason to hope, but hearing that from people that we don't trust or who are unclean outsiders is a blow to the ego. But it also maybe is kind of like the sign of the story Balaam, which they would have been familiar with, another magi from the east that they would have known who said, quote, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, Numbers 24, 17. Either way, it was sure to cause a stir. And this stir inevitably finds its way to Israel's sitting king, Herod. 
Now, rather than imagining a legitimate king of the people, you should be thinking of him as a brutal outsider running a puppet regime. He was of Arab descent, but his parents converted to Judaism and raised him in that tradition. His rise to power began because his dad had a good relationship with Julius Caesar and basically ran PR for him in Judea. That opened up opportunities, and Herod made the most of them. Herod was given small appointments at first, and he proved himself to be a strong leader under the banner often of law and order. He all but eliminated the pesky bandit issues of the region. Now, this would wind up being a basic characteristic of his reign. He was wildly ambitious and ironically was willing to break any law to advance himself. But he knew how to create alliances by giving people what they wanted most, forcing them to hold their noses regardless of the obvious rancor of his pedigree, character, and action. He was surprisingly appointed as king of the Jews by the Roman Senate, after which he was walked by Caesar Augustus and Mark Antony on each side to the temple where they made sacrifices to the Roman gods and had a huge feast. And as you would imagine, this didn't go over well with the people of Israel. But he was both savvy and brutal in his campaign against the existing ruler. See, Herod created enough fear, but he offered enough cultural glory to suppress the disgust and to keep at bay the threat of insurgents. Herod was a master at using religious zeal and affiliation to advance his own ambition, something we're very familiar with today. He claimed to be Jewish, but his ostentatious lifestyle with over-the-top parties and flashy homes and obsession with status symbols, not to mention his brutality, it created a deep rift with observant Jews. Now, in order to placate that rift, he often appealed to patriotic instincts and national pride by investing in infrastructure and building projects that promised to restore the previous glory of the country. He rebuilt the temple. He promised that his strong rule would make Israel glorious once again. But this order and this restored glory came at a steep price. See, Herod was not a benevolent or earnest leader, filled with unbridled ambition and driven by a fragile ego and paranoia. Our text says that when Herod heard the news of the Magi, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. Herod was troubled for obvious reasons. There's a potential threat to his reign. See, Herod had banished his previous wife and child and even killed family members to secure his kingship. Basically, when Herod was troubled, it meant trouble for others. That's why Jerusalem is troubled here, right? They're not worried about magi or news of a newborn king. They're worried about Herod's response. Now, it's a long principle that the more influence you have, the more your words and your behaviors ripple out for good or bad. It's a reminder that we need leaders that hold that influence responsibly and act for the good of the people, resisting the temptation to advance their own ambition or ego. Now, when we have fragile egos in power, we always end up paying a collective price, and I think we saw that this week. How do the Magi respond to this leader? Well, they confer with him, they give him a chance, but then they see him wheeling and dealing. See, Herod pulls together his little religious alliance, the scholars and the rabbis, 
who pretend to take most of the stuff seriously. He learns the threat has some validity, and so he sends off the Magi with an invitation to return so that he can pay homage himself. Now the Magi, they head toward Bethlehem where they get swept up into something much larger and much more beautiful than Herod's instructions and threats. They're overjoyed with the guiding light that leads them to Mary and Joseph's house. They behold the child, they bow down, and they worship. They offer their gifts to the ones they've traveled so far to see. The Holy Family receives theirs. They receive a divine warning to avoid Herod. Now, Mary and Joseph will eventually flee and avoid Herod as well. See, the divine wisdom for this moment seems to be that it isn't right to go head-to-head with an egocentric monster, but instead to set up boundaries, and in this case, to move away. Now, I've heard of friends who've had family members with narcissistic disorders, who've had to set up boundaries. And we see a sort of boundary drawn in Jesus' story here. His life will not be marked by direct and aggressive attacks to the center of power. He'll hang on the edge, caring for, including, loving, and healing those who are being hurt by that center. These provocative acts of care, with their provocative assumptions about how God is present in the world, eventually draw the center of power to him. He is drawn there, eventually, but he will not feed on the violence that he finds there, whether it's religious or it's political. Instead, he is moved by a love that understands from the beginning that this story sets the trajectory of, I think, that egocentric and violent power doesn't have the last word, and that the location of God's activity is to be expected among the outsiders and the disenfranchised, among the misfits and those of no repute. This story tells us where we can expect to find God's center of gravity in this world. The world is chaotic, filled with evil, and yet God's love and God's goodness remain and are active They're active in dubious pagan astrologers here. They're active in a refugee family. Jesus will show us that they are active among the sick and the poor, the prisoners, the possessed. If God's love and goodness remain and are active there, then they're active everywhere that's open to see and to receive, but rarely is that the center. Epiphany is about being the kind of people who are sensitive to and can receive and embody that light. It's a warning that false light is also there. Paul said, Satan masquerades as an angel of light, promising order and glory, but doing so with violence and deceit underneath. Let us consider where we see light in the world right now, and also where we see the false light. And let's focus our energy around the light that's truly light. And perhaps we can embrace that holy aloofness of the Magi who don't give infantile egoic power the attention that it's crying for. During the season of Epiphany, I invite you to make that choice for light. It's very tempting in the face of violence and inflated egos to match that violence and even to inflate our own. But the season of Epiphany reminds us that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is with the lowly, is with the humble, is with the merciful, is with those who mourn and those who cry out for justice. 
Let's be those kinds of people. Let's manifest that kind of light during Epiphany. Let's be like the Magi who got swept up into the light of God in the face of the spirituality of Herod, which sucked many people into its power. Let's resist that spirituality of Herod, which is still alive and well even today in this past week. And instead, let's take up the posture of Jesus Christ, the one who shines God's light brightly through the humility of a different kind of power. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Good Shepherd New York podcast. Good Shepherd New York is an interdenominational church centered around the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. Our church is theologically rooted in the Apostles and Nicene creeds, but we welcome people of any or no religious backgrounds to participate in our community. If you would like to support us, please text Good Shepherd NY, all lowercase with no spaces, to 77977. That's Good Shepherd NY to 77977. Or visit our website, goodshepherdnewyork.com. Thank you for listening.